0: Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. Welcome to Part 2 of our podcast, Discovering the Old Testament. In this installment, what I want to do first is talk a little bit about the Old Testament, how it's organized, its component parts and the role they play in the history of this remarkable book. The Old Testament is divided into three sections. The first one is called the Torah, or the Law. The second is called the Nevi'im, or the Prophets, and the third one is known as the Kithuvim, or the Writings. Each one developed in its own way at its own time. The Torah was canonized generally around, it's generally agreed to be around 330 BCE. It contains the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's primarily used as a legal text, at least in the Jewish tradition. The Genesis preamble, you might say, lays the foundation. It lays a historical uh, prologue for the law, how it was received, why it was received, and also make some very important statements and assumptions that inform the rest of the the Jewish legal corpus. The second part, the Neviyim, starts with Joshua, uh, then goes to Judges, the two books of Samuel, the two books of Kings, and then what we call the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. These are followed by the minor prophets. There are 12 of them, so they are often called simply the 12. And those are Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, uh, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Got all that? Okay. so the prophets are not just historical books like Samuel and King's. They are historical books with an agenda, with a message. And their object is to try and understand one of the things that we alluded to previously, and that is why Israel failed to live up to its obligations and suffered such a humiliating loss when the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C.E., we'll talk a little bit more about that when we when we talk about covenant and again throughout the rest of this uh, of this podcast the last book the ketuvim is kind of a a hodgepodge it includes books like psalms uh which are basically liturgical writings songs hymns uh proverbs which might be called ancient israelite success literature You have other uh, liturgically related books such as uh, Ruth and Esther. You have uh, the Song of Songs, which is an interesting attempt to describe the love between God and Israel in erotic imagery. And Daniel, which is a prophetic book but very late and bears uh, some interesting resemblance to the apocalyptic literature that became uh, popular. Starting around 200 BCE. In addition to those, you also have Ecclesiastes and Job, which serve as a remarkable counterbalance to some of the assertions that you find in the prophetic books, uh, definitely. And this raises a very interesting, uh, point, and that is that the Bible frequently disagrees with itself, and that's fine. The contradictions, the disputations, are there because the Bible does not pretend to present a one-all, be-all, one-size-fits-all answer to everything. It is a tool with which one can work and struggle and wrestle to try to figure out these questions and to deal with them in your own way. One example of this internal controversy as applied to the Bible is the fact that you have the books of 1st and 2nd Chronicles listed in the writings. Now, Chronicles is essentially a history book, but it covers the same material as is found in Samuel and Kings. So why is it placed here with the others? Well, one reason why is because there were differing schools of thought about what had happened to Israel and why these things had happened, and the book of Chronicles simply presented what might be called a minority view. Another reason might be, and probably um, is a big factor, is that it was much, much later than the others and really only appeared on the scene after the Nevi'im, the prophets, had essentially been canonized. So when did all that take place? Well, as we said, the Torah was canonized in about 330 BCE. The Nevi'im, the prophets, at about 200 BCE. And the writings didn't get uh, canonized or recognized as such until around uh, 130, 140 uh, CE, in or AD as we might have it. So here's another question. Where do we get our Bible? And what I mean by that is, what are the sources for it? The technical term used by scholars is textual witnesses, and there are four major witnesses that we have uh, from which we draw our text. The first is the Masoretic text. This is a Hebrew tradition uh, carried on by a group of scholars and scribes called the Masoretes, and they really got started in the first or second centuries CE, but the earliest manuscripts that we have from these traditions are about 1,000 to 1,100 CE. So, you know, well over a thousand years after the events they describe. Another source uh, is called the Targums. This is an Aramaic word that means translation. When the Jews returned from Babylonian exile to Palestine, they had kind of fallen out of the habit of using Hebrew as their everyday language. So since they all spoke Aramaic, someone sat down and translated the Hebrew Bible into Aramaic and this was used liturgically in services and whatnot so people could understand what was being said. The Targums are interesting because they do shed a lot of light on the linguistic background but they also tend to embellish a little bit on what was uh, on what was being written and for that reason uh, they also provide a window into the interpretive ideas that were present in the 1st uh, century bce which is when they were when they were written third resource is called the septuagint and this was a translation of the hebrew text from hebrew into greek the audience for this translation was a group of uh, well large community of jews living in alexandria egypt uh, and they had completely fallen out of the habit of using Hebrew, but they still wanted to read their scriptures. So they were uh, uh, translated over a period of years into Greek and uh, read commonly throughout the Jewish community at that time. The last one is the most recent, and that is the Dead Sea Scrolls. These were discovered in 1947 by a, an Arabian goat herd, a young boy, and since that time, uh, they have provided some very old manuscripts, some of the oldest that we have now. They predate the Masoretic texts by a good thousand years or so, and so their discovery was an incredibly exciting uh new window into the life and times of the Hebrew um textual tradition. One of the things we discovered was that the Masoretes actually did a pretty good job of maintaining what we might call the information hygiene of the text. Now, this is obviously a very quick and dirty discussion of where these things all come from, and we'll have an opportunity to talk about each one as we go. But those are the basic sources from which our Bibles and all of the variant translations and commentaries and so forth and so on uh, derive Speaking of translations there's a wonderful story surrounding the translation of the Septuagint and how it became known that the translation had god's sanction there's an ancient text called the letter of aristius that describes the story in which the Egyptian King Ptolemy decided he wanted a copy of the Hebrew Scriptures for his famous library in Alexandria. So they brought together 70 scholars and they put them all in separate rooms with a copy of the Hebrew text and asked them to make a translation. At the end of the time the 70 scholars came out of their rooms and when the translations were compared they were found to be exactly the same in every detail. And that, let me assure you, qualifies as a genuine miracle. One of the problems that crops up when we talk about the Old Testament is that word Testament. Christians frequently assume that it is uh, essentially a statement that the Hebrew scriptures constitute a prophetic document that points to the birth and ministry of Jesus and that it is a testament of his coming. Well, as you might expect, it's a little more complicated than that. The problem is that the word testament is derived from a mistranslation of the Hebrew word covenant, berit, with the Greek word diathiki, which really does mean testament. And this was something that took place during the translation of the Septuagint uh, starting around 200 BCE. Why this happened is something of a mystery but since this happened a good couple of centuries before Christianity came about, we can't hang this one on the Christians trying to appropriate the Hebrew Scriptures for their own uh, religious agenda. That said, if we were to call the Old Testament something other than the Hebrew Scriptures, we could, I suppose, call it the Old Covenant. Now, to make matters even more confusing, today we live in a society where the concept of covenant is virtually unknown. We have a vestige of it in the institution of marriage, and it does show up in a few obscure legal contexts. But basically, most of us do not understand what it's like to live in a society held together by a web of covenants. Naturally, the idea of covenant is the one thing that totally ties the entire Old Testament together, and so it's not surprising that we modern people find it a bit difficult to penetrate that into that world. But if you want a definition of covenant, probably the simplest is that it is a system of obligations bound with conditions. Those conditions include blessings or favors for compliance and curses for non-compliance. There are essentially two kinds of covenants, at least these are categories created by modern scholars. One is the parity treaty, which is essentially a covenant between equals, and vassal treaties, which are covenants between unequal parties. Covenants are usually enacted in some kind of ritual. There are many different ways of doing this. Frequently food is involved, and eating. Cementing a covenant with a meal between the two parties is a very old, old ritual. And it's possible that the word in Hebrew for covenant comes from a word related to food and eating. Another common metaphor for making a covenant in the Old Testament is to cut a covenant. This might be because what is cut cannot be uncut. Uh, There are also other linguistic reflections of this in other ancient Near Eastern languages. For instance, uh, the word in Babylonian meaning to make a decision or to take a decision is derived from a word that ultimately means to cut. It might also be that uh, this word for cutting refers to the cutting up of food for the preparation of a meal, but I think the idea that what uh, is cut cannot be uncut makes more sense in this particular context. A major breakthrough in the study of covenants took place in the mid-1950s when an anthropologist by the name of George Mendenhall was studying some ancient vassal and national treaties uh, between various states and nations in the ancient Near East, and he discovered that there was a pattern to these treaties, that they all had certain components. And when he went back and compared some of these components and formulas that he had uncovered with covenants in the Bible, he discovered that some of these biblical covenants follow the same pattern. The components in these covenants were as follows. First, there was a preamble. It basically lists who the two parties were. The second was a historical prologue that summarized the history between the two parties, or at least that part of the history that had special bearing on the covenant. Next came a set of stipulations, or demands, the terms of the agreement, in other words. Next came a procedure for the deposition of the text, where it would be stored, who would receive copies, and also a schedule, if you will, by which the covenant would be brought out and read occasionally to all the parties to remind them what their obligations were. The next component was a list of witnesses. Frequently this is where the covenant would invoke the names of gods or demons or human parties. And finally, the really fun part, the blessings and cursings. The things, the good things that would happen to you if you abided by the covenant and the bad things that would happen to you if you didn't. Now not all of these components are found in every covenant. There's a great deal of variation. But if you want an interesting exercise in looking for the parts of a covenant, go take a look at joshua 24 the entire chapter this is a record of a time when the covenant was brought out and reread for everybody to hear and understand and approve and you if you uh, look you will find each of these different components the preamble historical prologue the stipulations and demands the uh, deposition of the text Witnesses, well, maybe not that one, but blessings and cursings, they're all there. Now, there are three major covenants that define the Old Testament world, and we'll talk about those now. The first is the Abrahamic covenant. This is found mostly in Genesis 17, and this is what you might call the baseline covenant for Israel. This was a covenant between God and Abraham, in which God promised Abraham that he would become a great nation with numerous progeny and would be a blessing to all of humanity. He was promised royal descendants, that his descendants would include kings and princes, and that all the land of Canaan would be the eternal possession of his descendants, however one defines the land of Canaan. It was unconditional. There is no mention that this covenant would ever be lost which uh, presented some problems down the road. The second covenant is the one uh, enacted between God and Moses. It's called the Sinaitic covenant because of its traditional location on Mount Sinai. In this covenant, the Israelites were chosen to be God's holy people, a holy nation. They were given uh, stipulations, the law, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue as we call them, and uh, this covenant was also reformulated later as a suzerainty treaty, a vassal treaty, if you will. But that is also the point at which most uh, Jewish scholars, well, and Jews generally believe, that the Israelite nation was created was when it received that, the Sinaitic covenant. The last covenant is the Davidic covenant. The giving of this covenant is recorded in Second Samuel chapter 7. The basic points of this covenant were that David's son, Solomon, would build a temple to God, the temple in Jerusalem, and that the throne of Israel, that is the city of Jerusalem, would be established forever. Solomon would keep his throne in spite of his various extracurricular activities, but most importantly, David's dynasty, throne, and kingdom were to last forever. That was a pretty pretty heavy blessing, and quite a a controversial one. There is evidence, even in the Bible, as to whether this covenant was considered to be unconditional or not. But this leads us to the great crisis on which the Old Testament is based. The prophets, such as Isaiah, Hosea, Amos, and many others continually castigated the ruling and religious elite in Israel in terms that recall treaty curses. Their message was that Israel was not living up to its obligations. They questioned the permanence of the covenants, or the form such permanence might take. And eventually everything fell apart in 596 BCE when a greatly weakened kingdom of Judah saw her holy city, Jerusalem, sacked by the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar, uh, and the city was eventually destroyed, the people scattered, or reduced to eking out a living in the ruins, the elite intelligentsia, the artisans, were all sent to exile in Babylon. For all intents and purposes, it was game over. Every part of the covenant that they had grown to accept as a permanent feature in their lives was gone. And it was that crisis and those events that brought about the formation of the Hebrew Scriptures. We'll start with Genesis next time. Discovering the Old Testament is supported by the donations of our listeners. To make a donation, visit our website at lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S-Press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafkos Press of San Jose, California. Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament.